0: You are listening to the Blockchain Dialogues Podcast. All views expressed on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be taken as financial advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Dialogues Podcast with your hosts Krishna and Nikhil. In this podcast series, we analyze the various cutting-edge technologies and projects in the field of blockchains distributed ledger technologies and cryptocurrencies. And in this episode, we continue with part 3 of our 3-part series on DeFi Primer, a series where we explore the most fundamental concepts in the world of Decentralized Finance, also known as DeFi. Be sure to check out parts 1 and 2 of the series if you haven't already. Now let's have a listen to part 3. The next important concept that I think you know we should talk about is the concept of Automated Market Makers. So before we go into automated market makers, and Nikhil mentioned this you know, in his uh, explanation of a liquidity pool, let's just go a little bit into you know, what conventional market making is. So for example, conventionally, you know, if you have a centralized exchange you know, where people are trading cryptocurrencies or they're trading any other asset for that matter, you have a buyers and you have sellers. Buyers and sellers would come onto this platform where you have this middleman that is facilitating this trade happening between the two parties. And you would have uh, buy orders, sell orders, and this this would constitute something known as an order book. So, the centralized middleman is basically the party that is facilitating, you know, okay, this guy wants to sell 10 Ether at this price, whereas this guy wants to buy 5 Ether at this price. So, when both the conditions are satisfied, the market is made and the trade actually happens, right? So, in the DeFi ecosystem, automated market makers are actually, uh, it's a new concept that has come in, which is, Basically, this this facilitation of trade happening through the use of smart contracts. So if you are a buyer or a seller, you would just see a price given to you by a smart contract, whether it's for buying or selling, and it's up to you whether you you want to accept it or not. So this is, in a nutshell, the very overview of, you know, very cursory overview of what automated market making is. Nikhil, uh, could you describe that a little bit more in detail?
1: Sure. So... We went into liquidity pools just now and that's kind actually kind of an automated market maker, right? So that's basically where you have uh, a place where you can go in and uh, if you want to swap your token into whatever token swap that is there and that liquidity pool is available, that is, they will immediately uh, automatically uh, meet your particular need. The other type of market maker that is there is... Basically, the uh, conventional order book-based market makers. These are less popular right now, but uh, some of the big big ones basically are market makers from stock, stockware. Uh, and usually the idea is to kind of improve the speed in which... Actually, I take that back. Rather than improving the speed, what they're trying to do is they're trying to reduce the fees, right? So... All these market makers that are there con- currently, the liquidity pool and the smart contract-based market makers. The main challenge is that, in addition to the uh, other fees, the, that is the Uniswap fees, etc. There's also the gas fees of Ethereum that comes into play, right? So if you want to do a lot of transactions, you end up spending a lot of gas, and that is as the value of Ethereum rises increasingly uh, expensive. So what uh, the the other, uh, uh, I guess the other uh, approach to this uh, is to have the transactions basically kind of being wrapped up uh, off-chain off and uh, you kind of consolidate them and uh, you do one transaction on-chain uh and there are two approaches to this one basically where you have a central off chain uh, actual product uh and the other one basically uses uh zero knowledge proofs to kind of compress all the transactions and then put it in right so that's one uh, approach towards market makers that's happening uh, and then there are uh, the, the the key thing about those is that they are basically your traditional order book uh where you have uh, like KK was saying, you have buyers and sellers and uh, you have an automated uh, matching that is happening uh, at that time. So that's that's basically the two types of uh, market makers that I'm aware of. I think there are a few uh, new ideas also coming up. Uh, there is something called uh, Balancer and there is something called Curve. Uh, Balancer, basically, uh, the idea essentially is to use uh, have actually liquidity pools with more than two assets so you can have like uh, almost like a basket of assets uh, and that you are creating in various ratios and that forms a particular pool and uh, the other one with curve uh, essentially is a the use of a bonding curve where it's not a fixed ratio but depending on the amount of money that you take out or the amount of the size of the swap basically uh, the ratio or the value changes
0: next uh, i want to talk about something you know that that was really really a buzzing topic you know, in the past couple of months uh, in, in the DeFi space and that is the topic of yield farming and i know nikhil touched on this uh, on on yields and you know how people actually use you know various methods to uh, farm you know yields <laughs> so but could you just touch on that a little bit nikhil you know why what sure. was the hype really about what happened you know in the, in the past few months
1: so this is a, going back to the whole uh, thing, right? So why why DeFi and why is uh, why is DeFi so great and why is so different from CFI and flash loans and lending and all of that? So the idea basically is that you want to kind of go down this road of actively managing your crypto assets such that you can get the best annual percentage yield on APY possible, right? And uh, the reason why it's so interesting is that with a lot of DeFi projects, there is a lot of rewards that are happening, right? So now, even with the Sushi Swap thing, right? Uh, all of these new DEXs are coming out. Uh, new liquidity pools are coming out. Uh, in order to attract trading volume into their the, this whatever new uh, DEX that comes out, uh, these DEXs basically are offering coins. Uh, and incentives uh, as incentives to create for anybody who participates or who does a trade, right? So yield farming essentially is this uh, idea where you basically take whatever investment you have, and you kind of look at and map out the best place that you can put your investment in, uh, convert it, trade it, lend it, do transactions with it, such that you get all the maximum number of voter awards, and then obviously uh, that improves your yield, right? It's interesting, there's a uh, within yield farming also, there is this idea of crop rotation, <laughs> which is basically the idea of when you monitor your uh, strategy and uh, you find that okay, uh, I was going to uh, Bangor for this particular transaction and banker was giving me some uh, tokens, but now they've decided to remove that or they've decided to reduce that. Uh, I'm going to rotate and then change to another particular project, maybe burger swap or something that now gives me a better uh, yield, right? So it's, it's almost like, you know, you're actively kind of finding where these opportunities are and optimizing your uh, investment, uh, your crypto assets, uh, so that you get the maximum yield. So that essentially is uh, yield farming.
0: So Nikhil, there, there's this other term that I've heard uh, of late. Uh, it's called vampire attack, uh, and it has to do with yield and yield farming. Could you just uh, go a little bit into that as well? You know what what this attack is?
1: Right. So this is uh, this is uh, again uh, one of the cutesy things about DeFi. I think they they are very into memes. Um, but uh, so Vampire Attack essentially uh, came up as part of the whole uh, Sushi Swap, I guess, controversy. You want to call it? I, I'm not going to go into that. But essentially, what happened over there was, it, and it's Vampire Attack is not even actually directly related to the controversy per se. Uh, but it's basically about the strategy that was followed. So the idea essentially, Sushi Swap essentially is a fork of the Uniswap protocol, and what they did is they started offering incentives to the people who were in the Uniswap uh, ecosystem to come over and join the Sushi Swap ecosystem, and to provide you know in uh, financial incentives, sushi tokens if you went in went over, and uh, generally, basically, the idea was that since it is a fork of Uniswap, uh, most of the community of Uniswap would not have too much to change and they would basically move over to SushiSwap for the uh, higher incentive and then, you know, you know SushiSwap is essentially kind of like a vampire draining the liquidity of Uniswap, which is interesting. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's I guess that's, that's basically also part of the whole yield farming idea where there's no loyalty uh, towards a particular platform per se. Uh, yield farmers are just going after where you can get the best yield and uh, in the short term uh, one of the ways in which you can basically create a following for your DEX uh, a decentralized exchange uh, is by doing this sort of thing where you give incentives and kind of try to drain the liquidity of other decentralized exchanges.
0: The the next concept that I want to talk about is that of decentralized autonomous organization uh, which is also popularly known as DAO so dao is actually one of the old concepts in the blockchain and crypto space you know from back in 2015 2016 you know when uh, ethereum was really picking up as this decentralized network as uh, this really cool new technology after bitcoin where you could have uh, you know you could build decentralized applications you could uh, build different kinds of incentive mechanisms over a decentralized network where you could remove middlemen, you could facilitate all kinds of things, you know, using smart contracts, right? So uh, DAO basically is is an organization. It's, as, as the name suggests, it's decentralized in nature and it's supposed to be autonomous. So a DAO would not have a CEO or a president uh, as you would have uh, in, in, in your real world centralized institutions, right? So a DAO would be a decentralized organization that would be completely controlled by a decentralized community uh, as they would vote on it and all the decisions on DAO, the functioning of DAO, the working of the DAO would be facilitated using smart contracts. So if if, uh, there there would be certain rules written down and once a rule is fulfilled, uh, once a condition is satisfied, the rule would just get executed, smart contract would kick in and uh, you would have different sort of transactions taking place on the network uh, without the need of a middleman. Back in the day, you know, when DAO was just becoming this this new popular phenomena, it was one of the uh, most heavily funded projects in, in in the whole crypto space. And uh, that is when a big hack happened. Uh, one of the smart contracts uh, had had a, a flaw, and therefore some funds were stolen. And this was actually one of the uh, key reasons for Ethereum as a community to split into Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. So uh, I would say DAOs. Uh, are still an important concept, uh, especially going into the future, you know, where we're looking at decentralized finance becoming more mainstream and actually becoming a a valid replacement for uh, conventional finance going forward, right? So uh, Nikhil, do you want to touch on that a little bit? Where do you see uh, DAOs fitting in?
1: So one of the things about the DeFi ecosystem is this uh, almost principle that they have that uh, there is no centralization, right? And uh, one of the main challenges with that, obviously, is that, okay, how do you build something uh, in a decentralized manner? How do you maintain it? How do you develop further on it or improve it, etc, etc, right? So DAOs basically have been kind of resurrected as a way to kind of address that particular aspect, of the DeFi projects. So most DeFi projects, at least the uh, prominent ones, have a governance token and uh, some sort of decentralized voting or electoral mechanism in which the uh, owners of this governance token can participate and uh, act as the board or the management from which they make the decisions on how to move forward with the project. Uh, in a lot of cases, uh, this is basically initially given to the uh, a large percentage is initially given to the development team and uh, to any investors like VCs etc. Uh, but the intent essentially usually is that they would disseminate this over uh, over time into the community and then you know slowly make it more decentralized.
0: So the last concept that I guess we want to touch on is uh, insurance. And uh, this is an important concept because one of the key things about uh, cryptocurrency space as a whole, uh, one of of the promises has been the onboarding of large institutions, right? So one of the key things when it comes to large institutions, you know, for them to invest a substantial amount of funds into the cryptocurrency space, you know, they, they need insurance, you know, to back their funds you know, if, if something goes wrong, their funds are still insured, right? So, Nikhil, do you, do you want to go into that? Like, what are some of the mechanisms that provide for this to happen?
1: Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, so, yeah, one of the big challenges about DeFi is the fact that, yeah, it's almost like the Wild West out there. Uh, we have uh, new projects coming up all the time. Quite a few of them uh, don't survive for very long. There are uh, obvious scams, uh, not so obvious scams, genuine failures, and everything in between. Right. So, one of the uh, big needs that we I think is seen over there is that you know there needs to be some way of kind of managing this risk or hedging this risk, and uh, insurance is the natural candidate for these kind of uh, for this kind of question. Uh, in the traditional finance, we've had Uh, insurance uh, for most of banking and most finance is regulated and insured which is again like one of the reasons why people can and do often do kind of go and do risky things because they know that there is that insurance to fall back on. Decentralized uh, finance uh, there are a couple of players in the insurance uh, area it's not commonly mentioned uh, but there is uh, nexus mutual who's creating a decentralized insurance uh, by creating a risk sharing pool Uh, so there is a common pool that is governed by members where membership uh, rights are represented by the nexus mutual token and uh, this uh, is basically i think started they offer smart contract insurance so basically uh, the users can get protection on their funds being lent out onto any public uh, ethereum smart contract so if you're uh, if you're going to put funds on compound smart contract or a uniswap pool you you have the option of buying insurance from uh, nexus against that uh, any 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 problems that might happen over there another one uh, There is a platform for insurance swaps called CDX. This is basically for uh, hacks on popular exchanges. So uh, uh, this uh, CDX basically provides you with uh, protection against credit default swaps. I mean, they are basically credit default swaps that provide you protection against uh, any kind of uh, exchange hack yeah so these are the couple of ones that i uh, i am aware of i'm sure there are others as well uh, they probably insurance uh, on real world risks as well that might be coming up but yeah for defi i think these were the ones that came up so
0: we talked about a lot of different kinds of concepts in the defi space and you know many different projects out there you know that are fulfilling different purposes in the in the decentralized finance ecosystem so, when you look at actually uh, the various projects that are working in the space, what are some of the key parameters that you see as, you know, parameters of success or failure?
1: Well, that's kind of a hard question, KK. So, uh, parameters of success or failures, especially in cryptocurrency, they kind of move, jump up and down and move around depending on what it is. Uh, one obvious one is basically competence, uh, uh, competence of the team because a lot of uh, failures are associated to you know bugs or challenges in code so it's kind of hard to kind of look at that and say okay you know how do i tell if this is a project that is doing well without you know uh, looking at the code and being an expert in that uh, but uh, some general uh, signals that come up uh, would be to look at the amount of volume in terms of the token uh, tokens being ch- traded over there in the project uh, the number of active users or wallets uh, what is the annual percentage yield if you're a yield farmer or a budding yield farmer that might be something that is in pr- interesting to you how much value is locked in uh, so how much of the value uh, how much of the ethereum value is locked in into that particular project the level of decentralization uh, that would be another key indicator uh, usually the when there is it's a small team or if there is a small community uh, it's uh, it's it's kind of uh, harder to trust because obviously there is a chance that you know uh, you might have the rug pulled out under, underneath you by by them and they decamp with all the money um so yeah, so I would say volume, level of decentralization, number of active users, uh, the annual percentage yield, and the value locked in uh, are some parameters that you can look at. Uh, but, you know, uh, and other ones you might want to look at is maybe if there has been a security audit done uh, and, you know, if there is a good technical team behind it.
0: So before we wrap up uh, this episode on uh, DeFi, you know, where we uh, wanted to discuss the, the basic concepts or the key terminologies that are used in the DeFi space, I want to get your thoughts, Nikhil, on where do you see DeFi or how do you see it progressing or moving forward? It looks like you know a lot of fundamentally different mechanisms have been built in DeFi ecosystems. Things have been thought out. Different mechanisms have been designed. So uh, in terms of real world adoption, how fast do you see it moving forward? Any thoughts on that?
1: So I can definitely agree that there's a lot of excitement around DeFi. It's been one of the primary drivers, I would say, of the cryptocurrency ecosystem over the past year, especially in this kind of uh, pandemic time. Uh, but there are also uh, causes for concern as well, right? Because uh, there have been in the over the past year, uh, two or three attacks, uh, a couple of them using flash loans. Uh, there have been uh, people decamping with the money, uh, developers disappearing, projects suddenly going to zero. So there's a lot of churn as well. Uh, I think it's still early days. It's kind of like I said, a wild west. One of the major challenges I see is a lack of uh, hedging for the risk that is being taken. There is a lot of risk. And uh, obviously, the flip side of that is because of that lot of risk, there is also yield farming and a lot of APY. I think there is a lot of momentum uh, uh, and I'm I'm hoping that, you know, that momentum continues. We will be talking about a few interesting projects. Uh, I think Uniswap is a very interesting proposition. I think uh, they solved a big problem in the uh, cryptocurrency space with the automated market making and the liquidity pool. Uh, I think it's a very interesting project to look at, talk about. Uh, I think we should talk about stable coins. They also address a big need. So a lot of this uh, I see out here, even though, you know, if you look at it purely from a financial perspective, I think Uniswap has got now, I think, about over one and a half billion dollars locked up uh, in value. Uh, and uh, it's, it's trending up quite fast. Uh, more than the price and the value, the financial aspect of it, though it's important, uh, I'm kind of excited about, you know, some of the interesting solutions that have come out and uh, some of the ways in which they have addressed what were, even a few years back, some kind of almost intractable problems, right? So, for example, the problem of price volatility was definitely something that was Uh, a major concern and uh, now that's been addressed by stablecoins another problem was basically okay how do i create a decentralized exchange on a blockchain and uh, we have liquidity available for people to actually trade on it and that seems to have been addressed so there there is a lot of uh, interesting technical solutions i think we can go through uh, and uh, i'm quite excited about upcoming All
0: Alright folks, that concludes our three-part series on DeFi Primer. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play and Spotify. Also, you can learn more about us on bcdialogues.com. Thanks again for joining. See you next time.